Welcome to the Speaking of Tangents podcast. This week, we're starting out differently than our normal episode. While primarily this is a comedy podcast meant for entertainment purposes only, and you really shouldn't trust or believe anything that either one of us really say, um, the conversation does take a serious turn. And while we eventually do get around to our usual level of nonsense, we felt like we needed to share some things that have been on our minds the last couple of days with the events of this week. So if you'd like to skip the seriousness, that's okay with us. The time codes are in the body of the description, and it's about the first 10 minutes of this episode. After that, we'll talk decidedly less serious about Valentine's Day. And then the great David Aldridge joins us for an extended interview segment that you don't want to miss. Then we'll get into some feedback at the end. And just to be clear, even though David's on the show today, we recorded the interview with him earlier this week. So please understand the views expressed by KJ and I in this first segment are ours and ours alone and are not endorsed necessarily by anyone or anything else. So I kind of know what you're going to say, but um, what's up this week? Uh, well, uh, unfortunately, there are isn't all good this week. Um, no. You know, I just want to mention this latest school shooting in Florida because it's really yes. on my mind heavily this morning. And Same look, here. I don't want to dwell on it because really, what am I going to say? And you know what? Let's be honest. Our podcast is about nonsense. But, yes. you know, I'll say the same thing I said after the Las Vegas shooting, which is essentially, you know, I don't know what to say except it's horrific, uh, awful, you know, insert whatever adjective you want. Um, and and something needs to be done about this like 10 yes. years ago already. Something real, something tangible. You know, I, I'm not smart enough to know what it, that is exactly. But you know what? Congress needs to step up here and or somebody mm -hmm. needs it. Something needs to be done. But that's it. You know, I just wanted to acknowledge it. Um, they're really, you know, it's on my mind and there can't be anyone out there who heard about this that isn't affected. Can there? Can there be? Uh, I mean, it, I don't know. It, it just feels well, weird not to say anything. And yet I don't have anything absolutely. to really say. So. It's just well, awful. I have something to say. It's it may be nonsense, mm -hmm. but I mean, my what I say may be nonsense, but I I, I feel like we, we talked with David Aldridge earlier this week. We recorded an interview before all that happened in Florida. Yes, and so that's going to be coming up later in the show today, uh, right after this week in review, probably. Um, so we didn't talk about it then, but there's an extended portion where David talks about. Um, Martin Luther King and visiting the Lorraine Hotel and all that. And then I'll leave that for let him say that because he says all of, everything he says there is much better than I could put it. Mm -hmm. But one thing he said and talked about in his article was uh, Martin Luther King was about not just don't he was about civil rights and equal rights for everyone, which is great, you know, obviously great. But he went beyond that to don't just say these things. Exactly. Don't just don't just say, you know, you know, yeah, we should all be equal. When you have the power and you have a position where you can make an action, whether it's a small action local or it's a big action like the government and Congress should be doing to make a change and make a difference. If you don't do that, you are wrong. Yeah. And it's that still sticks with me about you can be about prophetic things and you can be about faith and you can say thoughts and prayers that's if you believe that and i believe that you should do that but if you don't go beyond that when you have the ability and you have the um the mandate to do so which is our government right should be doing something about this if you don't then take action then what you're saying is empty words 
Yep. And that is faith without works, and that is ridiculous. That is what the Bible itself points out is, don't be like this. That's a hypocrite. So for people to say thoughts and prayers over and over and over again, totally fine if you want to do that. But then if you have the ability to take an action and you don't, then you're wrong. But what I think it comes down to is the same thing that I say about bad marketing, the same thing I say about how the government doesn't act when it should sometimes, the same thing with this Aetna healthcare thing that just happened with them, the doctor not even reviewing, the doctor that was in charge of saying claims should be approved or denied didn't even look at the medical records, which is insane. You know, the state of California is suing them and it was a systemic way they were handling and dealing with these cases. That is insane because all of this kind of comes down to me to when you put dollars above people's lives. Yeah. And when you do that, you're evil. If you consistently do that and you choose to, well, I'm going to fill my pockets or I'm going to take a bigger tax cut for me and my millionaire buddies and screw all these poor people. Come on. That's evil. And it all comes back to if you have the ability to do something about it and all you do is say, you know, thoughts and prayers or, you know, I'm thinking about you or good luck to you. It it says in the Bible, if you say bless you, you know, be well, but then don't actually take the opportunity on the action that you should be taking to help the people, to give them food and clothing, you're evil, you're wrong. And that's what we're at with all of this stuff right now. And to say this stuff on Twitter, and, and look, people can tweet stuff and do whatever they want to do, but if you don't act when you have the ability to do something to change it, you're wrong and you're evil. Yeah, you got to be able to, you have to be able to back it up if you have the ability to change it, which yes. is kind of what I was saying, like Congress needs to step up because Absolutely. they do have That's the ability I'm to. to change it. Yes, they do. And what's what what we need to do now as people who are supposed to be represented by these people Yes, we have the ability. The, to every opportunity too, that we have we? is to is to protest and make the change by when the vote comes vote, up next time. Yes, yeah. register and vote and get the people out. If there's somebody who voted against a gun control bill, and look, I am a person who believes in you should be able to own a gun for your own protection. Mm-hmm. And I don't have any problem with people who have a pistol or a shotgun for hunting or a rifle for hunting and that kind of stuff. Nobody needs an assault rifle. You know who needs assault rifles? People who are in the army, who they hand them to, and they're out in literally in a war zone. Yes. Nobody in America needs an assault rifle. Amen. That stuff should be banned, first off. Secondly, there should be these controls. The fact that people on the no-fly list that can't get on an airplane can go out and buy a gun because Congress voted down the bill that said, okay, everybody on the no-fly list should also be on the you know ban from yeah. buying guns. Insane. Is insane. Yep. What is wrong with people? I, it's, I know what it is. It, the only Besides explanation Greek. that makes sense to me is money. Yep. yep. And these people are evil. And it is apparent and obvious, and they're not even trying to hide it anymore, it seems like to me. No, I, I can't, they're not. I can't believe where we are in America now. It's crazy. Crazy. Yep. It's it's really disheartening. I don't even know what else to say. Like you said, there's right. what else can we what say about this? What else can we I, say? People well, need to do something. People that have the uh, ability to make and change this stuff should be doing it now. Yes. Well, before now, but come on, it's time. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah like you said, it's way past time. Yeah. yeah. So I think what you said was not nonsense, though. I think it was very on the money. Well, I appreciate that. But I, it, it, I can't, it's just unbelievable to me. Oh, and yeah, me too. We could sit here and yell about this and rant back and forth for another hour easily. I don't think that's what people come to our podcast for. Exactly. So I'm going to just say, 
this is insane. I can't believe it. I, vote. Yeah. Get these people out of office that cannot understand what is going on and that put money above people. Don't give your money to people, to in corporations and insurers who put money uh, over people's lives and value dollars over literally people's lives. Yeah, I had not I, heard what happened with Aetna until you told me about it earlier this yeah. week. Yeah, that's 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 an awful thing where, I mean, there are people that could have died from that. I, I don't know because the fact if you deny coverage to somebody and they turns out they needed it and you deny without even looking at their claim and they die or they get sicker and sicker and sicker and they don't get the health care they need because they can't afford it on their own. Mm-hmm. That's why they pay you insurance, money for insurance. So if that happens, those people that run Aetna, those executives, because it, what, it, what the doctor said, the guy who was, who was being deposed about it, he said, this is what I was told to do. This is the way this company is ran. And so if that's the case, if those executives said, yeah, just, we're just denying everything, then those dudes need to be in prison too. Yep, absolutely. It, I, I couldn't, I guess I, I wasn't too surprised when you told me, but still, it's it's still unbelievable, even though I wasn't too surprised. That's that's really, it really is the dichotomy of, it didn't shock me at all, but I was still like, this is insane. I cannot believe this is going on for all yep. of this stuff. Yep. It's, it's still, it's the combination of not being shocked and also completely like stunned every time something like this happens. Anytime people value money over people's lives. And I guess the thing that I can do now is when I say, you know, we want, I want everybody who take the action that you can take, mm-hmm. because honestly, a lot of us can't really do much about this other than vote and hope that we have other people that come to their senses and vote the same way. And I'm going to see what I can do, I guess. I don't know. But come on. Right. Come on. It's, yeah. What do you, yeah. I don't even know what to say. I mean. Yeah. It's very difficult to make a transition out of something so serious into the usual nonsense that we do. And honestly, we don't have the answers to much of anything uh, in the first place. So um, we're just going to do it and jump right into the next segment. Valentine's Day was this week. Did you have any, you know, Valentine's candy? No, I did not. And those, those, I saw Liz Clark tweet about Converse, she brought conversation hearts to Sochi. I mean, not Sochi. Where are they? Pyeongchang. Yeah. Or P.F. Chang's as one news outlet. I think that was here in Atlanta. They called it P.F. Chang's? Okay. <laughs> they called it, and they had literally had the graphic said P.F. Chang. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> On okay. the screen. Okay. There's like a screenshot of it. I'm like, what are we doing? And I didn't think that anybody really liked those conversation hearts. I think you and I talked about our stance on Valentine's Day. We talked about last year, which is it's fine for people who like it. And yeah. especially if, you know, both couples like it. But you and I don't like it. And mm-hmm. um, the, the idea of needing to set aside a day to be loving to somebody, you should be doing that every day is, I guess, my that's, stance. That's 100% right. Yeah. Well, speaking of greed, I mean, it's a money grab. How much, what did they say about, I saw a- um, uh, Hallmark holidays. Yeah. yeah a st- st- statistic of people spend, I don't remember what it was, $36 million on Valentine's Day. 
I'm, wow. I'm probably way off on my, don't quote me on that, but no, it was we'll pretty quote, that's, high. That, that's the actual figure okay. right there now. All right, 36 million on Valentine's Day. That's year. crazy. Yeah. Um, well, so, uh, Jason's wife went to the store last night um, and she said it was like the the section in the, in the grocery store that has like the candy and the... Um, like bake bakery things and like you know cookies and cakes and stuff and also has like the flowers and stuff. She said that looked like you know that's that was like Atlanta bread aisle after you know they say it's the snow is coming. She said it just like looked like a tornado went really? through. Really, completely empty and people were like running through there grabbing stuff what they could and it's just like if you're waiting until and this is like six p.m. on Valentine's night. If you if on you're waiting until then. Night? Yeah, if you're waiting till 6 p.m. the night of Valentine's Day to go in and get something, it's it's too late. Yeah, it's like uh, you're second <laughs> it's guessing. It's too little, too late. Yeah, you're not second guessing, but you're a little bit late. Yeah, well, it's oh, I, I forgot. Mean, put a little more thought into yeah. it than yeah. that. That's I better go I'm get saying. something. Yeah, now if, you mentioned or, or just yeah, you mentioned Atlanta bread, and I I've seen mm-hmm. Atlanta bread before, which is basically the same company as Panera bread and St. Louis bread. They're all the same company, I think. Are there mm-hmm. any Panera bread breads in Atlanta? Are they all Atlanta oh, yeah. bread? No, 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 no. It's it's a different company. It is? At least the one in, yeah, because the one here in Atlanta shut down because the Panera that went up, like, within sight of them. Mm-hmm. Um took all their business, and so the Atlanta Brick Company here went out of business. That one store, they shut it down. Okay. At least I, I think it's different. I think they're competitors. It's, they seem to approach it that way here. Okay. Well, I will say that I'm pretty sure, 100% sure. How's that for, you know, being confident? 100% sure that St. Louis I gone with and Panera Bread are the same company, just different okay. labels. That I did not know. I, but what I was saying though about Atlanta Bread was not the Atlanta Bread Company, no, I which know. is an actual, but like the bread aisle here in Atlanta, uh, the bread I, oh, breads I aisles okay. here in Atlanta, like bread and milk. When yes. you have like a snow, yes. Anytime you get a snowstorm warning in Atlanta, or even hey, it might snow three days from now, you cannot buy bread and milk at the grocery store because it's all gone. Which again, why those particular things? I don't know. Are you making a milk sandwich? What are you doing? Although I will say that when I've been sick and finally I'm starting to feel better, but when I was sick, the only thing that I could eat, so Whole30 was out the window for when I was sick because the only thing that made me feel better was peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So I can see where the bread comes into play. (laughs) I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day for dinner for like 10 days straight. That's all I could eat. I'm going to have a hot take here real quick. Okay. Peanut butter and jelly together are garbage. I know you don't like it, but I love it. Jelly ruins the peanut butter. This is the flavored Oreos all over again. No, it's not because this is actually good. No, it is not. It's terrible. It's terrible. It ruins a peanut butter sandwich. You know how the best you know the best way to ruin a peanut butter sandwich? You put jelly in it. That's the best way to ruin a peanut butter sandwich. Or bananas and fluff. No, that's okay. And bananas and mayonnaise and peanut butter are okay. No, we've and potato chips. We're gonna have like to just crispy. This is gonna be another watermelon situation because peanut butter and jelly is great. <laughs> well, we can agree to disagree yeah. on that. Um, and by the way, those conversation hearts. Yeah. They to me they I might as well take a pool cue box and lick the chalk. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's chalk. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess I, I used to. I mean, I don't think it's terrible, but I'm not gonna. 
That's not something. Oh, those are terrible. That's not. They are terrible now. I think I probably have eaten them, and I mean, I know I've eaten them, and I've probably said I liked them at some point. But was this I don't like in like the seventies when candy, like cigarettes, yes. were yes, I used to like candy cigarettes and those candy necklaces that yes. were just all chalky, crunchy garbage that before, they sold us and said it was candy. Yeah, before candy got all sophisticated. Yeah, before candy got good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, w- one last thing about being sick. Yeah. You re- you you were sick two weeks ago. Uh, well, when we uh, you've been sick for a long time, but a couple yes. of weeks ago, Tony Beeson wrote a jingle regarding your oh. flu, and last week we forgot to play it in our um, one long segment sicky special. So yes. um, I think we should cut to that right now. I think that'd be a good way to end the week in review and segue into Mr. Da. What song is this? Jackie Blue. Jason's flu. <laughs> Gave it a zero in his review. There we go, nice. Running a fever of a hundred and two. Ooh, Jason, I feel sorry for you. You live your life with a viral strain. You'll take an ever for the aches and pains. There never seems to be enough rest When influenza settles in your chest There you go. Ooh, 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 Jason's flu Gave it a zero in his review <laughs> Absolutely gave it a zero. Yep. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Thanks, Tony. And and that, in a nutshell, is the nonsense of our podcast right there. Yeah. All right, all right. Now it's time for the segment you have been waiting for. The great David Aldridge, DA himself. I know him. Calls in to talk about all sorts of things in his career as a journalist and TV personality. He talks about being part of the Tony Kornheiser show in the community that surrounds it. Gives his extended thoughts on visiting the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial and Museum last month and the very powerful and moving article he wrote based on that visit. And finally, he tells an amazing story about Bill Clinton that you absolutely have to hear. So whatever you got to do to get ready for the incredibleness coming at your ears, do it. Because here we go. Do we have a guest on the show this week? Answer no or yes, it's a binary thing. Do we have a guest? Do we have a guest? Answer no or yes. Well, yes, we do have a guest. In fact, we have our very own actual David Aldridge moment today. David's a longtime NBA <laughs> reporter and columnist. He's currently an NBA analyst for TNT. He's also a writer for David Aldridge's Monday Morning Tip on NBA.com. And he's a regular contributor on the Tony Kornheiser Show podcast. Oh, and he's a proud alum of the American University. And to quote his own words, he's a sick fan of those AU Eagles. <laughs> and last but not least, in 2016, David was honored by the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. Please yes. welcome Hall of Famer David Aldridge. David, yeah, thanks so morning. much for joining us. Well, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So anything keeping you busy lately? Not, not much <laughs> that's going on at your plate. 
<laughs> no, it's been very boring, as you know. <laughs> I know. Uh, no, it's it's that time of year where everything is going crazy. We had the trade deadline last week. We've got the All-Star game this week. So it's, uh, it's a busy time in the association. Yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're very excited to have you here. You know, Jason and I met each other through doing these silly jingles for the Kornheiser show. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think I was first introduced to you from listening to that show. And now a lot of our listeners of this podcast are also TK show listeners. So since you're a regular guest on the TK show and you have been for many years from way back in the radio days, I think a good place to start is by asking you to talk a little bit about how you first met Tony and how you ended up being a regular guest on the show. Well, uh, I met Tony, uh, in the sports department of the Washington Post, where we both worked for many years, Tony longer than I, but mm-hmm. I was there for about uh, nine years. And when I got there, I was very, very young, uh, just out of school, just out of AU. Uh, for some reason, they decided to hire me as a general assignment sports reporter, and then uh, that led to some other assignments, but uh, that's how I started. And, you know, the great thing the, about the post in that in that time was that there was such an egalitarianism to it. So literally the person who answered the phones in the sports department could bust Tony's chops about something. And we all, uh, <laughs> nice. and, and, and vice versa, obviously. Um, and so it was just a great place to work. And not only was the, the talent that was in the office at the time, just, Unbelievable. I mean, you just think about all the people that, that were in sports when I was there from uh, Tony and Mike were, were both there as columnists. And you had John Feinstein, you had Richard Justice and Christine Brennan and Sally Jenkins and oh, some and Bill Gilday and just so yeah. many people that were just unbelievably great writers. Um, and they were in the office. I mean, in those days, everybody came to the office. It was so different. And I, and I, I hate to sound like, you know, the old man in the room. It was just so much better. I think than it is now where I think most people don't even go in the office. They just sit in there, you know, sit home with their computer and it's fine. It's easier. I get that. But, um, being in that office, coming in every day, um, whether you were working on something for the daily newspaper or not, and just being able to to bounce ideas off of people and and talk to people, um, it oh, just it just it just enriched me in ways that I can't even I probably can't even describe accurately. Um, and so being able to go into Tony's office and tell him that he was an idiot for something that he wrote, <laughs> you know, as a, and this is me being, you know, a 24 year old, nothing who had nobody who had accomplished nothing in the business talking to Tony Kornheiser, who was, you know, from the New York times and an accomplished great writer and funny and the funniest guy in, in America, you know, it just, it made it gave you a, a confidence that, that allowed you to do your job better going out. And then, um, you know, it, it was just a great place to work. Um, and I, I can't, George Solomon is, is, you know, to me, one of the great bosses of all time, even though many days I hated him and wanted to throw him out a window. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's part uh, of what makes made him the great boss. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
he 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 saw talent. He gave he gave people opportunities that didn't get opportunities. I mean, there just were not a, a lot of people of color. There certainly weren't a lot of women sports writers nationally. Mm-hmm. And George, and this is the thing I always say about George: nobody. George didn't need a focus group to tell him what to do. He just did it because he thought it was the right thing to do. You know, there was nobody protesting outside the Washington Post saying hire more minorities or hire more women. It was no no campaign. George just knew back when most people didn't, he thought it was important to have different voices and different perspectives in the newsroom. So, again, whether it was... Myself, Mike Freeman, you know, Mike Terry, there were so many people that that he gave opportunities to early in our careers when there was no reason to reach out to us. And again, Johnette Howard and Lisa Muscatine and, and on and on and on and on. All the people that he that he brought in and all throughout his career, well after I left, and you had Liz Clark and you had Chelsea James and all these people that are you know, he just was remarkable in that way. And, mm. you know, it was a fun place to work. And so that's where I met Tony. And that's where we became over the course of the years I was there. And then I went to ESPN in 96. And Tony soon after came with the radio show first and then with PCI. And we just because we had known each other at the post and I was covering the NBA for ESPN. Then when Tony started the radio show and wanted somebody to talk about the NBA, he would call me and ask me to talk about it. And so we continued our relationship through all of the iterations of the radio show <laughs> yes. uh, and on to the podcast. And we were just friends. We've just been friends for a long time. And it totally comes across that way. And what you were saying about being in the office with the other people there and the camaraderie and the interaction of it not only made you better, but that, that comes across um, in like shows like with him and Wilbon on PTI and you guys on the radio show and now through the podcast, that relationship of it's almost like I can hear you guys talking and debating and arguing the same things. It's it's like you st- that those conversations started out in the newsroom of just when nobody's recording it and nobody else is listening. That spirit still comes across to me in how the podcast is now to today, and that's I think that's what makes it so great and makes it so interesting to a lot of us that listen. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I, I've uh, yeah, I mean, I've often said that PTI. I watched PTI for eight years before PTI was ever on television because it's the same <laughs> shit. You never been in the office. Yeah. Just them yep. screaming at each other across the hallway, and that's what they did. And so, um, <laughs> so they, it's a legitimate, loving friendship, even though they exasperate each other and think each other is a fool and for different reasons. <laughs> but you can tell that they really do care for and love each other a great deal, and that's why the show works. I believe that's why the show works. Right. Yes. Now you you mentioned that you start. Did you start at the Washington Post? Is that your first job after AU or kind of maybe take us down your memory lane of where you started from and how you ended up with TNT and writing for NBA.com. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a long story, but fortunately we're, it's a podcast, so we have time, right? <laughs> yes. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, I started, uh, that was my first job out of college. It's, it's ridiculous. And I know how ridiculously unusual that is. So, um, I was at American university, um, 
started in 83, graduated in 87, and was very fortunate to be there at a time where we just had an amazing group of people come there who all were journalists of one stripe or another, and um, many of whom are still wildly successful in journalism today. Uh, it was just you know, my, my good fortune of going to AU, which was my safety school, which was <clears throat> the fourth choice out of four for me. Um, I can't even begin to fathom how lucky I was to go to AU because I met my wife there. I met almost all of my friends who are still my best friends today. I met at AU. It was just a great place to be. So uh, long story short, I was on the school paper with, with, um, several people, one of whom uh, still is at the post now, Steve Goff, who was one of, and I'm, and I'm not saying this because Goff's a friend, I'm saying this because it's true. He may be one of the three or four most influential soccer writers in the world right now. Wow. Okay? He just, he is that highly regarded and knows the game that well, has covered all the World Cups, almost all the U.S. Uh, big matches in the last 20 years and just become, and again, I give George all the credit for seeing well before anybody thought soccer was an important sport, he would send golf to Trinidad and Tobago or to Mexico for a, a big event, a big match. And, and his influence has grown from there. At any rate, at this time, Steve wasn't doing that. He was covering high school sports like everybody else who <laughs> would uh, be starting out. Um, so Steve was at, at the post covering high school sports and just so happened that the high school sports editor uh, at the time at the post was an AU grad a guy named Mike Trilling and Mike, um, for, for again, incredible reasons of serendipity for me would bring AU kids down to cover high school sports at the post. He, if, you, if there was somebody who was at AU who was, you know, a reporter of some who had some talent, he would mm -hmm. bring them in and try them out. And so he did that with Goff and Goff got a job on the desk, um, was working there part time while he was still in school. And so, you know, Goff would tell me, Hey, you know, we're, they're looking for a high school guy. They, they need a high school person to come in and, you know, I was on the, I was the editor of the paper at the time, so I couldn't do it the year that Goff started talking to me about it, but I was a junior. So my senior year, I was done being the editor. I didn't want to do it again. Um, so I was just kind of hanging out, be, being a pathetic has-been, as we used to call it on Eagle's staff. <laughs> once, you, once you were done being the editor, you didn't have anything else to do. So you just kind of hung out there. So, he, you know, so I, he told me, Hey, you should call Mike Trilling. Cause he's still, they're still looking for people for the fall. And so I called him and he said, yeah, why don't you come down? You know, we'll find something for you to do. Cause that's in those days that actually happened at the Washington Post. <laughs> so my senior year, my senior year of college, I worked part-time at the post. I covered high school football and high school basketball, uh, mainly. Um, and then did some editing while I was there. And, um, you know, golf was there and, and a couple other people were there. One of whom was Molly Solomon, who is now like the number two or three or four person at the golf channel. She's a big time muckety muck there worked at NBC sports for a million years doing their Olympic research and has become, a, was a huge person in television is a huge person still in television. She was one of the people that was there. And when I was there 
Um, and so we did that while, and so while I was there, my senior year in college, um, Lenny Shapiro, who was one of the editors of, in the sports section at the time had come to me and said, you should apply for this internship that we have at the post. And it's a national internship. Um, they hire two people in each section, two college kids in each section, and they work there as a full-time reporter during the summer the following summer. So I applied and for some reason they picked me as one of the two people um, <laughs> that to come work full time in the sports section in the summer. So I graduated from AU and wow. I started working at the post as an intern. Now there was no promise of a job. It was just a, a three month internship. And so mm -hmm. again, the great thing about George is that, you know, unlike a lot of places where the intern just answered phones and got coffee and made copies and ran errands, George, I covered the Orioles. Okay. Wow. wow. Yeah. So talk about George getting experience the, right away. Yeah, that's exactly, a big step up. Exactly. Yeah. Throws you in the deep end to see if you can swim. And that's exactly how you should do it. You know, yeah. either cool. you can do this or you can't, you know? And so, and I tell people all the time, if you don't, like writing on deadline and you have 10 minutes and it's the bottom of the eighth and it's tied at three o'clock and you have to have a story written in the next 12 minutes. And you don't love that feeling of anticipation and nervousness and fear. And then this is the wrong business for you. And a lot of people don't like that. Don't want to be under that kind of pressure. Well, I loved it. I loved being under that kind of pressure to create something in a very short period of time. And so um, I uh, basically did the Orioles, all their home games um, that summer. Uh, and then the internship ended and I thought, okay, well, this has been great. This will be great to put on the resume because I have all these clips of all these game stories that I've written. And I was good. And I, I was going th uh, through Gannett. I was trying to get a job through Gannett, which owned a bunch of papers nationally at the time. And then about, I guess a month after the internship was over, George called me and, and said, you know, we have an opening um, for its general assignment. Um, it's whatever we ask you to do. And would you be interested? And that's how I got the job. Now I, wow. think, they asked, now I think they'd asked other people who turned them down. In fact, I'm pretty sure I know that a couple of people that turned them down for <laughs> one reason or the other, but it doesn't matter. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Right. Um, there you go. <laughs> So I was 22 and working at the Washington Post and my first job. And it's insane, that's but that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. So when you got there, was Tony calling you Cliffy as an intern or wasn't Tony using the Cliffy word? <laughs> he did not. He had not used Cliffy yet. Had he hadn't come, come up, up with yet. that yet, huh? No, no, no. <laughs> but Tony, you know, it's funny. I was saying earlier how everybody could kind of get on each other. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I remember distinctly in the hallway one time in a just a kidding way, just going, yeah, how did you get a column anyway? I mean, seriously, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, make, what makes you so special? And him <laughs> saying to me very, very earnestly, you know, I got this column because I'm a big talent. I'm a big, big <laughs> talent in this business. <laughs> <laughs> don't you know and who so, I am? Is basically Exactly. It was literally, yeah. you, don't you know who I am? <laughs> um, and so, so it was just, it was, a, it was just fun and great and wonderful. And I covered a bunch of things from the Indy 500 to the U S open tennis tournament 
um, just all, all the final four, the NHL playoffs, just everything um, that first year. And then I covered Georgetown and then I covered the Bullets and then I covered the Redskins and then I left. <laughs> so, so that was, uh, wow. and it was for the only reason I left, I loved working there. Um, I didn't leave because I was unhappy. I left because I wanted to be a columnist like everybody did, you know, mm-hmm. and Tony and Mike and Tom Boswell at the time were the three main columnists. And I don't think at the time any of them were anywhere close to 50. I think maybe they were in their early forties. And so, you know, you didn't lose a column. You, you died basically. That's how you lost your column. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you didn't, they didn't take your column once you got it. So I just did the math. And so yeah. I figured, okay, by the time one of these three guys gives up their column, it's going to be, I'm going to have to wait 20 years and I don't want to wait 20 years. And so, um, and so again, incredible fortune, the ESPN called and was looking for somebody to cover the NBA on a full-time basis. And Jackie McMullen, for some reason recommended me and they listened to her (laughs) and they listened to her because Miss Doria had been her boss at the Boston globe. And so he was one of the, one of the bosses at ESPN at the time. And I guess he had called her and, and I had covered Georgetown when Jackie was covering Boston college for the globe at the time. So we knew each other because um, it was the big East and the big East was a big beat at the time. And so we kind of kept in touch over the years and she was covering the Celtics and I had been covering the bullets. So we just kept running into each other. And so I, she, I guess she thought I was pretty decent and she said, you should call David Aldridge. And that's what <laughs> happened. <laughs> I would say she's, she was right. <laughs> yes. <more> than decent. <laughs> yes. From there, from ESPN, how did you end up going to TNT? Um, w- w- did you do TV at ESPN? I don't remember. I did. Or if it wasn't just Colin. Okay. No, no, it was TV. They had just, you know, they had started, uh, you know, with um, Chris Mortensen, who had been writing for the Atlanta mm-hmm. Journal-Constitution, had been covering the NFL. So he was probably the first person that, that they had, they had, they were in the process of hiring a bunch of newspaper writers and putting them on television to cover leagues. Mm-hmm. They wanted people who kind of knew the leagues and could report and break stories and get news. So they brought Mord in. They brought Peter Gammons in from the Boston Globe to cover baseball. They brought me in to cover basketball. So, uh, so yeah, I did TV. I mainly I did write for the website, but it was new. I mean, it was so, this is so long ago that the website was a new thing. You know, the internet mm-hmm. was a new thing when I started yes. writing for ESPN.com. My main job was to do TV, be on TV. And so I did that for eight years and the first five years were great. And the last three years weren't so great because it's TV, mm. you know, it's television. And at some point somebody comes in and they have a different idea about what they want to do. And you either fit that vision or you don't. And I didn't. And so they decided to go in another direction. Um, and so after eight years uh, we, you know, they didn't renew me. And I, again, was incredibly fortunate that it wasn't, I think I was maybe a month after that decision got out and became public. Turner called me and said, we'd love to talk to you about coming in. And we had always at ESPN watched TNT and gone, God, they look like they're having so much fun. Yes. Cause we weren't, cause we weren't. And you'll always go, wow, they look like they're having so much fun. They just look like they're just joking and laughing. And 
and it's exactly what it is. They are That's, having that yeah. much fun. And so <laughs> I joined them about three months later and, um, in the interim also worked at the Philly Inquirer for four years while I was working at Turner. And that's another whole story, but, um, it was great and it's been great. And I've been there ever since. And, and it's been nothing but laughs, um, for the last 13 years. And it's been a wonderful place to work. And it's by far the, the best place I've ever worked. Um, just in terms of how they approach things and the way they do things and, and the way they appreciate the the sacrifices that you make in terms of family and time and all that sort of thing it's just a great it's been great and i've had so much fun being there well it certainly comes across on on tv that you're having fun on on the tnt every time i watch tnt i basketball i think about how much fun you guys look like you're having yeah i love it when the games are on tnt because uh, i always like to hear you know Obviously, Charles, Kenny, and Shaq, what they have to say, but but seeing you guys on there, all of you, the whole crew, it just always seems seems. I'm I'm glad to hear that you guys have as much fun as it as it seems like you are on TV. It really is, and I know Kirsten knows Kevin Harlan very well from the Timberwolves days. You know, just doing a game with Harlan and doing or doing a game with Marv. I mean, it's just awesome. It's just great. You know, I mean, I can't even express yeah. how much it doesn't feel like you're working when you're work when you're working with people that good, and so it's just. It's terrific, and um, it's been great, and I've, I've truly enjoyed the, the experience, and I, and I continue to enjoy um, going to games and going to All Star and things like that. It's been, it's just a, it's a, you know, as I always tell people, there's a guy digging a ditch for nine dollars an hour. That's work. What I do is not yeah. work. Yeah. Well, yeah, when you can find something that doesn't feel like work, hang on to it. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So. So. Speaking of TV, one of the reasons, too, that I love to watch TNT is, you know, I get a DA moment every time I see you. (laughs) And, you know, for people that don't know, this phrase originated, was it Kornheiser that started it or did somebody else? I know that he loves to see, he gets really excited when he sees his friends on TV. And somehow that morphed into the TK show lexicon of a DA moment. Yeah, and it's no, been it was, what now was, five six years since many, that happened. At least many right. years. <laughs> many years. Yeah. Do you remember so how that reason, started? Well, I I'm, I don't remember the specific uh, instance, but I know that that again it was um, probably. I guess it was maybe it, it was probably before, it was probably while I was still at ESPN. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the actual origins of it where Tony would, for some reason, just say, I saw you on TV, and I saw you do the game, and it was so great to see you on TV. And I would go, Tony, you're on TV. What are you talking about? You're on TV every day with Wilbon. What is, I, yeah, but when you see, you see your friends on TV, it's just great. You just think it's all so awesome. And I guess it's where, that, where it started, you yeah. know? And so yeah. it's continued on over the years. And I still don't understand why it's exciting to him to see someone do the thing that he does every day. But okay, if it was exciting to him, I guess. Sure. (laughs) It it reminds me of like when my grandmother would call me and say, hey, I saw your name in the local paper and, you know, you're famous now. And I'm like, what are you talking about? But with the added layer of Tony is on TV every day. So for him to get excited about that is even more like what? (laughs) Yes. Yes. So it's, it's very, 
Yeah, it's very weird. But hey, that, you know, that's part of the show sensibility. So, <laughs> yes, so I have come to appreciate it. <laughs> I'm wondering where your D- DA Moment t-shirt is from the TK shop. You know, we have um, the Eat It Saliza t-shirts that are being made yeah. and, and the <laughs> Tell Michael umbrella. Where's the DA Moment swag? It's, That's what I want. I to need know. to talk to. I have to talk to my attorneys about this, don't I? I need to have <laughs> them yes. look into this immediately. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, if it if it helps with the swag, I, I would be happy to do that. But it it just it still seems very strange to me. But I guess some people like it. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's part of the lexicon now. It'll be down down in history. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I mean, I I, I get it. I do get it when it's someone that's not normally on TV, like a, a, one of my best yes. friends. I saw her. She she was she writes for the Palm Beach Post, and she because she lives down there, she writes a lot about about Trump because Mar-a-Lago is in her kind of physically is in her area of in, of sphere of influence. Um, mm-hmm. So she writes about business down there. So she's even before he became president, she wrote about Trump a lot, and so something happened where he, something involving Mar-a-Lago and him. And so she was on, she showed up on CNN one day and I went, Oh my God, Alex, she's on TV. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I see? get it, but I just, yeah. I get it, but she's not on TV often. So it's different, you know, it's, yeah. it's, yes. it's not like she's yeah. on TV every day. And he's, no, this is like probably the only time she'll be on TV. So that was why it was exciting was because it was new and different. So yeah, that's, that's where it's different for me. So. But I do get it. I understand it. Speaking of being on TV and CNN, um, I saw you on CNN. Uh, this is, I think, right around the time that the Steelers um, and Tomlin didn't come out of the locker room for um, the national anthem at, at an NFL game. And, and CNN was reporting on that and talking about that. And they had you on to talk about how um, the NBA was handling that kind of thing. And, um, mm-hmm. and, I noticed, and this is this is going to be a ridiculous question. I'll go ahead and preface it up front. I noticed that because it was a serious, and I, I love what you had to say about all that. Um, but that your mic wasn't on at the beginning of the segment, and then they oh. like, took a commercial and came back, yeah. and then your mic was on. And I'm wondering if the producer said in the ear, because I, from a production standpoint, did the producer say, "Hey, we got to take a break to fix well, this mic"? Or was me- it a- he, he didn't tell me. He, I, I'm sure yeah. he told the host because after the first question, she said, we have to take a commercial. We have to go. Yeah, to I was like, whatever. what are we doing? Yeah. And I thought, that, that's kind of odd. Well, I think, you know, it happens, especially with CNN. I mean, I've done CNN a bunch. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's CNN stuff. You know, news happens in the middle of things, you know. So yes. I just thought, okay, well, maybe something happened, you know, that they have to, they have to go to immediately. And, you know, okay, sometimes it, sometimes you're on for five minutes and sometimes you're on for, you know, 45 seconds. That's just yeah. <laughs> a news network. You get it. Yes. But then she said, oh, she said, she said, when we went to break, she said, you know, we're not done. Something's wrong with your mic. We're going to fix it. And then we're going to come back. And so she explained it to me. I think it was uh, Brianna Keller, if I recall. Yes. So, that sounds right. um, so, yeah, I mean, so that happens and it was okay. And, you know, it's television stuff doesn't work sometimes. And, you know, if they can't hear you or see you, it doesn't work. So. <laughs> yeah, on TV, right. that's bad. Yeah, yeah <laughs> not you kind of need thing. both of those things. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's, it's either, you know, it's either talkies or radio. I mean, one of the two, and neither one of them is good. So, I mean, <laughs> they have to see you and hear you for television to work. So, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Very true. Well, switching gears just a little bit, um, we talked about 
you writing for the um, NBA.com with your, your Monday morning tip. And I read yeah. your column probably about a month, I guess almost about a month ago now about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day and you're visiting mm-hmm. the site of his assassination, the Lorraine Motel, when you were in Memphis. And I was very, very touched by that column. And I just wanted to commend that column to our listeners and give you a chance to talk about that experience if you want to. I just felt that it was a sure. very thought-provoking piece, kind of about how the city of Memphis and the NBA as a whole, really, are trying to navigate how to spread Dr. King's message in a real, tangible, meaningful way. And I thought you articulated it well. Well, well, I appreciate that very much. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was not planning to write about that, um, about my experience at the at the uh, civil rights museum. Um, not because I didn't want to, I just, I just had another idea about what I was going to write about. You know, I had gone down, I've been to Memphis many times for the uh, MLK day game, um, mm-hmm. over the years and, uh, hadn't, but I hadn't been in about five or six years since the last time I had done a game there. Uh, and, and so I'm always struck by, and I think uh, for obvious reasons, I have always been struck by the juxtaposition of uh, what happened in Memphis uh, in 1968 with the idea of bringing more economic development, more economic potential and possibility to a city that is, you know, has struggled to be, I think, fair, has struggled with that Mm -hmm. for many years, for, you know, for decades um, there's a whole rich history about the 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 problems uh, that that Memphis has had racially. Um, you know, certainly uh, this year, before the game and last last fall, you had this incredible tumult about the statues that are down there, the statues that were down there of Nathan Bedford Forrest and and uh, Jefferson Davis and the the kind of real grassroots protest that, that grew up out of those uh, desire to, to take those monuments down. And you had the coach at the time of the team, you know, publicly come out in support of getting the, taking the, the, the statues down. So, mm-hmm. so there's always been this kind of angst in Memphis about race relations, about economic development, about bringing more opportunities to, to people of color down there and, to minorities down there. Um, and then you have this basketball team there, which is, um, one of the, you know, I, I would never say a basketball team substitutes for public policy, but I would say that, you know, the, the, everybody in Memphis supports and likes the Grizzlies because they feel like, you know, the Grizzlies being there helps Memphis in terms of its national profile, helps Memphis in terms of its standing, um, brings businesses to the city that otherwise may not come. Um, so they, there's a great sense of civic pride in the Grizzlies, much, much as there is with St. Jude, the children's hospital down there. Um, mm-hmm. and the, uh, some of the other, some of the other icon, iconic things like sun records and, and Elvis and all of those things. There's, there's a great deal of civic pride in all of those things. Um, and so, I'm, but I'm always kind of interested in how they're doing in terms of, you know, is the team being more than just a tenant? Are they being a steward yeah. in the community? Are they really reaching out? 
And so mm-hmm. I was going to write about that and just kind of where they are in that discussion. And I had talked to some people in the organization. And you know what? They are, there are some things that they should be very proud of. They, they have an academy down there that they have helped open up and that they've given their name to and put some resources into for, for um, predominant, again, predominantly uh, young men and women of color and, and really tried to strive for academic achievement there. And they've done some other things, a lot of other things in the community. Um, but I did know that this particular year, because it, it started, and anniversary is the wrong word, it, it started the kind of marking of 50 years since the assassination. So April of mm-hmm. 2018 will be 50 years since the assassination of Dr. King. And so they are marking that time with a series of programs and events throughout the, the spring, uh, the winter and the spring. And, and one of the things that they're doing, one of the things that they did was they, you know, since it was the Lakers and it's a pretty high profile team, they invited, you know, a lot of people involved with the team, the entire team and the management of the team and, and the commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silver, came and they were doing a lot of special programming uh, with regard to the 50th commemoration of, of the assassination. Hmm. And I had the, my plan at the time was I wanted to see if I could talk to a couple of the Laker players after they took the tour because I knew they were going to take the tour. And so I had called the, the Grizzlies and, and they said, well, they're, they're taking the tour I don't know if they're going to want to do anything afterwards, but here's the time they're going to be there. If you want to try and talk to them afterward, you know, have, feel free, have at it. And you know, that's, that's daily journalism, right? Take your shot. You may work, you may not. Okay, fine. (laughs) If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I can write my way out of it. If I can't, if I can't get any, anybody else. So, so I got there and I wanted to take the tour again. I had taken the tour before. But I wanted to take it again to make sure that, you know, to refresh myself on some things that were going on in the tour. And so we go. So he says, OK, take, you know, here's a time you can come take this tour because it's every half hour, basically. And you can come and take the tour. So I went through the tour and, and, it, and it, it's a it's a remarkable it's a great tour. Um, it is, though, I think. I would say this as someone who's, who has studied and uh, was paid, you know, I was a history major. So this stuff kind of resonates with me. So I know a lot about the civil rights movement and I know about, you know, the, the sit-ins and, and freedom summer and mm-hmm. Goodman Schwerner and Cheney and Fannie Lou Hamer and all that. Those are not new names to me. So it's good right. to be kind of, it's good to get, Reimmersed in it, but the tour is kind of, if you follow it, if it's something that you knew a lot about it, there was nothing especially new about the tour is what I'm saying. It wasn't, it wasn't boring. It was a good tour. It was like, okay, yes, I remember that. And I remember that. And I remember that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, the tour ends with, since it is the, the national civil rights museum has kind of enveloped what was left of the Lorraine motel that was mm-hmm. the whole point of it was to build a civil rights museum there um, because the Lorraine motel had fallen to disrepair in the seventies mm-hmm. and early eighties. And they were about to condemn it and tear it down. And a group of Memphis businessmen and community leaders said, you know, we shouldn't tear this down. We should, we should do something with this. This should be. And, and they came up with the idea of building a, a museum around it. So mm-hmm. the old tour ends in a very powerful way 
with the preserved room where Dr. King stayed the night before he died, which is in the Larry Motel. And yeah. so you walk past the room, which is, it's, you know, it's glassed in, but you can see in, and they preserved everything, the suitcase and the cigarette butts and everything that, that was there that night. They kept all of it. And so the, you know, you walk past it and it tells you what they did the night before. And there's a whole history of why Dr. King came to Memphis. And it's, you know, it's really worth looking into if you're very curious about it, because mm -hmm. it, it, talk, it, it, it talks about and references a real change in where Dr. King was when he died in terms of what he was fighting for. He was, it was not so much about civil rights as it was economic rights. The reason he came down there is because he was fighting for sanitation workers who were yeah. grossly underpaid and working in terrible conditions down there, and he wanted that to change. So at any rate, it, it describes the whole reason why he came down, and, and then it describes what happened on April 4th. And you can see... It tells you who was there, and it tells you what happened and how and when he was shot, and and in the and you can also go across the street to the boarding house where James Earl Ray fired the shot, and you can go into the room and see where he oh. fired the shot, and it tells you about James Earl Ray and where he came from and why he wound up in Memphis and how he had been stalking Dr. King for many months, and and it's very powerful. Yeah. But that's the, yeah. that was the old tour. They didn't let people out on the balcony. It was not part of the tour. It was, mm -hmm. that was a very rare thing that they would do every once in a while for very important people. But I guess they decided when they did this major renovation a few years ago, they put about $25, $27 million into the renovation of the museum. They decided that they would open up the balcony to everyone, to everybody mm -hmm. that took the tour. And so the end of the tour this time, instead of just going past Dr. King's room, you open the door. There's a man standing there and he opens the door to the balcony. You walk out on the balcony and wow. you, it's a small balcony. I mean, this is a small motel. This was a small black owned motel in the 1960s. This was not, this is not the Ritz. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. so this is a very small motel. So when you take three steps onto the balcony, you are standing where Dr. King was shot. Yeah. And you know that because you've seen that balcony and you've seen, yep. we've all seen the, the, the incredibly iconic photo of all of the people in the entourage pointing to where they thought the shot came from yep. as they stand over Dr. King's body. And so you're there, you're standing there. And the tour guide explains that the FBI believes that the shot came from the window across the room, across the hall, across this small courtyard. And you look over to the window where they think it came from because he says it's the window that's open because all the other windows have been sealed. So they left the one window open and you look over and you go, oh, my God, that's that's really close. It's much closer than you think when you see the other side of it. And 
it just, when I went out there and I saw that, and they have a, a very small piece of the original concrete um, kind of um, uh, framed is the best way I can describe it um, because they want to commemorate it. And right. you're just standing there and I'm just, you just, I was just overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed emotionally knowing that the history of my life <laughs> as an African-American child, I was three when Dr. King was killed. I, my life changed. Everybody's life changed on that balcony. Um, and you know, whatever Dr. King was going to be, he was not allowed to be. Um, and it just, it just was again, emotionally overwhelming. And I just started sobbing. I started sobbing and thank God Swin Cash, the great hall of fame player played for the played in Detroit in the WNBA for many years, was one of the great UConn players for Gina Oriema, was on the tour with me. And James Worthy, who's a Hall of Famer with the Lakers, was on mm -hmm. the tour as well. And they just, like, grabbed me and, you know, embraced me and said it was okay and it's okay to cry and we want to cry too, you know. And mm -hmm. it just was, to have somebody there to kind of help me through those moments was just, uh, was, was much needed on my part because it just, it just overwhelmed me. And, and I'm the type of person that I need to write. I need to write when I'm moved by things. I have to write about how I feel about things, whatever it is that happened. Um, and I just knew when I was done, I said, I have to write about this. I have to, I have to let people know about this because I just, I was just, you know, it, it was just um, as emotional a thing as I've ever experienced uh, in my life. And yes. it was, um, you know, it was something I wanted to share um, because I think, you know, people um, need to know about the whole juxtaposition of Memphis and the people there, the people that live there and are trying to make the city better along with the, uh, you know, the new people who come through and people like me that are just there for games and how it all kind of works. It fits together or doesn't fit together. Um, and that's what I wrote, wound up writing about. Um, so that I didn't want to make myself the focus of it, but I just felt like I needed to witness this for someone because it yes. was that powerful. Yeah. Uh, I'm I, really glad you wrote it. Um, yeah, it came I across. It. I saw the, I saw the picture. The reason, the way I got to the article was the picture. I believe that Michael Lee uh, tweeted about it. Um, the picture of you, and it was just a very powerful, moving picture. Yes, it and was. Like I said, I, I have to see what this is about. I have to go read this article, and um, I know exactly what you're saying in terms of when it's inside of you and you're moved by something. Um, writers write, and like musicians make music, and artists, you know, paint or draw. It's it's, yeah. it's sharing that emotion and that power and that move being moved with as many people as you possibly can is what you just have to do it. And I really loved in the article, um, what you said about, uh, Dr. King being about prophecy, but also policy and that mm -hmm. uh, so many people, like you said, focus on the civil rights, but when he had started the transition and started, he talked just as much about the economic rights and, um, for people of color and, and women. And, and it, that, um, that was just as much of a focus uh, as, you know, after, after the civil rights for him. And that's just, 
I think so many people forget that, and I honestly needed to be reminded of that too. So I I, I love that article and for that in particular, and just the the emotion came through in what you wrote there. So it was great to read, and highly well, recommend I, anybody go read it. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. It just was, you know, it, it's it's and it's for and it's it's meaningful. I think for everyone. Um, Absolutely. You know. Oh, definitely. And I. I and I understand that, and so I wanted, I wanted to hear because I'm always interested, you know. I, and I have a soft spot in my heart for Memphis because it's, you know, among the NBA cities, it's one of the smallest ones. You know, there's not mm-hmm. a lot yes. um, going on. It doesn't have a, you know, fifty Fortune 500 companies there. You know, but people live there. You know what I mean? People live there. They make their lives there. They make their homes there. And there's people who want to try and make that city better and who are working to try to make that city better. And, and so I, I am always struck by those people that, have, that, that try to make things work in a city like that. You know? And it's not easy. It's a tough lift. It's a heavy lift. Mm-hmm. And they try and they keep trying. And so I'm, I'm moved by that and I'm touched by those people. And I, I like being there and seeing them and talking to them about how things are going. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. And the column is called City of Memphis, MBA Navigate, Carrying Out Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Message. And it's um, on Monday Morning Tip, MBA.com. And we'll tweet, we'll tweet out a link to it. Yes. Okay. Shifting gears. We, we, would yeah. <laughs> be, we would be remiss if we did not ask you, because it's MBA All-Star Game Week, um, mm-hmm. I, I assume you're covering. Are you, are you going to go to the All-Star Game? I am going. I will be there. Yes. Um, so what did you think of having the leading vote getters of each league, LeBron and Steph Curry, be the captains and pick the teams? Um, do you think that will lead to more casual fan watching? Or do you, do well, you think that that won't? We certainly really? hope so. Yeah. <laughs> we certainly hope so. Definitely, yeah. I'm pretty hit or miss with all-star games, but I'm going to watch it because of that. Yeah. Well, that that's the that's the idea. Um, I think it's. I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school when I say that you know last year's game was not good. Okay, it just was not good. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. it was just. It was literally you know dunk 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 yeah. dunk dunk. Yeah. No deep, absolutely no defense being played. <laughs> the no. players not showing that they didn't really care about the game at all. That they just were throwing alley oops to each other. Yeah. <laughs> it was tough to watch and it was tough to cover, frankly. <laughs> I mean, so, <laughs> so, I mean, I think everybody understood that we got to fix this. We got to try to fix this at least because this is not, this isn't good. This isn't a fun product. Mm-hmm. So I give, you know, the NBA the players association credit for at least trying something. Well, I hope it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't, but at least we tried something different. Um, yes. So, you know, having, having, LeBron and Steph um, pick the teams, I think, does bring a certain a different kind of flavor to it. I only wish we had televised them actually yeah, picking yes. the players. Yes. I, think, <laughs> I think that would have been a great event and it would have been fun. And, and you know, as I, as I and others have said, you know, these are, these are grown men. These are, you know, big right. boys. They can handle a little pressure. It's okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, so I would, I hope in the future we do televise it. Um, 
because it would be fun to see see them a- agonize over picking, you know, their, their fellow All-Stars. For the people team. are It'll tuning in for that drama for sure, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So I think it'll be fun. I'm sorry we've had so many injuries to, to you know, LeBron's team. Since yeah, was it like three, four guys? It's like five now. I mean, there's been oh, like, wow. I mean, there's <laughs> a bunch of guys that aren't going to be able to play, unfortunately. So... Um, but it, but the idea is good. And I think going forward, it'll be fun to do it that way and, and more fun to do it that way. And, uh, hope we keep doing it that way. Do you have any inside info on who picked whom and in what order? <laughs> well, I guess we know who, we, picked you know, who. we, yeah, we, we have the, we have the pickings. We don't have the order. I you think most people No, but I think most people, since LeBron had the first pick are pretty much I think we all pretty much agree he picked Durant first. Durant, yeah. Even yes. though, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I can't, <laughs> let's put it this way. I can't, I can't imagine that if he didn't pick Durant first, that Steph then didn't pick his teammate, right? So, I mean, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, right. Just by process, it's like a game of clue, you know, by process of elimination, <laughs> you kind of figure that he took Durant first, that Durant was the first yeah. pick, you know, so yep. you kind of work, work backwards and figure it out yeah. that way. So we'll get a little um, Sherlock Holmes on this and figure it yeah, out. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> it was that, that one was kind of easy. It left them a little harder, but um, you know, I said, th- and we also, you kind of working backwards, kind of figure that, that LeBron took Kyrie. If not first, he took him fairly high just because mm-hmm. of the nature of the team he picked. And, you wouldn't, he wouldn't have wanted to be forced to either take or not take Kyrie later in the process, you know, sure. because if his last yes. pick isn't Kyrie, you know, people are going to say, well, why didn't you pick Kyrie? So it had to be mm-hmm. earlier again, working backwards, you would think he had to do it earlier. So you can kind of figure, kind of figure out well the order they went in. And so, you know, <laughs> you can kind of, it, it's not easy, but you can kind of figure it out. Yeah. 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 Yeah, LeBron seems like one of the sharpest, smartest basketball guys to ever to ever play in the NBA. So I I think he he reads situations or seems to be from you know just watching him on TV and in interviews yeah. he definitely seems to read situations very well. Yeah, he's he pretty smart. He's pretty smart. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of NBA, I've watched many clips of Greg Popovich on. Um, on YouTube of him being interviewed during the quarters. But my yeah. favorite one is when you asked him about being happy and he just yes. looked at you and went happy. <laughs> I don't know how to judge happy. And that was basically right. the it. Is right. he as he seems, I, every time I hear him talk in interviews and in, in, you know, press conferences and stuff after the thing, and especially now with the political climate of everything that's happened in the past year, I love everything he has to say about all that. Is he as fun to cover in person as it is, for us to watch him being covered. Uh, he is, I, I think, you know, I, I like Greg a great amount. And I think, I think all the sideline reporters do, you know, mm-hmm. but we all understand that he doesn't like to do that in-game interview. And so right. you just try to, I mean, look, all I can tell people and all I do tell people is, you know, it's 45 seconds out of my life. It's not really that big a deal. (laughs) (laughs) So all you can do is come up with two questions. You come up with the two best questions you can think of and you ask him. And if he feels like answering them, he will. And if he doesn't, he won't. What can you do? There's nothing else I can do. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bring any particular great insight to him. I told this, this, uh, one of my uh, colleagues, Mark Stein wrote this. It was actually a good piece about all of the, 
sideline reporters and all of our interactions with Pop over the years. And I told him, you know, look, I'm not going to I'm not going to come up with some question where Pop goes, wow, David, that's really I hadn't thought about that. You're right. Why, do, <laughs> why don't we do that? <laughs> you know, so I get it. I'm not, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is a waste of his time, you know. So, basically. yeah, he, he he definitely sees it that way. Yeah, yeah he does. He, he thinks that's a, he doesn't like to do it during the game. I mean, he's great before the game. He's great mm-hmm. after the game. He just doesn't <laughs> like to talk during the game, and so it's okay. And I get that. So I'm okay with whatever, however, and whatever he says to me in those with those two questions. Um, but otherwise, he's terrific. Um, he. He got us a place to eat after the game. You know, he wow. found his yeah. He's just a really good guy, and he's very thoughtful, and he gets the world that he lives in. And, um, you know, from that standpoint, he's, he's a pleasure to deal with. Um, and it's, you know, it's just this one thing. And it's, it's not, and again, it's not like he's just like that with me. So it's not personal. It's just he no, has, no, no. Yeah. fundamentally, he just thinks, he should not have to be bothered when he's working. And I get that. I understand that. Yeah. I understand that point. I would just say humbly that my network at ESPN paid the NBA $24 billion to broadcast the game. <laughs> yeah. so, yes. Because we paid $24 billion to broadcast the game. I don't think it's an imposition to ask you two questions at the end of a quarter. So. There you go. Yes. There you go. <laughs> I will say that you keep it very entertaining in those in those spots too. So it is still even even if he's not answering questions or whatever, it's 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 entertaining to watch. So it is good TV, regardless. Yes, I appreciate that, and he makes it fun. So yes. Now speaking of interviews, you've had the opportunity to interview a lot of people in your career. I bet. Um, mm-hmm. Is there yeah. one person or a few people that are some of the most interesting or the most fun? that you've had to interview or have a chance to meet? Hmm. Well, wow. That's interesting. Um, I, I always, I always tell people that one of the more fascinating people that I interviewed was someone that, that I don't think many people would know offhand. And that was when I, again, when I covered the Indy 500, I interviewed a guy named Jim Crawford hmm. and Jim Crawford was a, was a driver, um, a, you know, a fairly successful driver. I think he won a couple of races. He wasn't like a big superstar, but what made the interview memorable to me was that the year before he had been in Indy and had raced and had been in a horrible, horrible accident. I mean, just one of those awful ones where you just cringe when you see it because you think, wow, I hope that person is okay. Like, mm-hmm. luck for, I hope they're alive, you know, right? Yeah, they're not dead. So, right. Yeah, so he wound up, I think, breaking both of his feet, both of his ankles. It was just Ooh. an awful, awful accident. And it took him basically the entire year to rehab. And mm-hmm. he still was not 100% at this time when, I, when he was um, in the, when he had, qualified for the race the following year. I mean, he was still kind of having to jerry rig the way he hit the, hit the floor pedal. Cause his foot wasn't quite healed. It was just, <laughs> it was really fascinating to me. And I just remember like, I was just, I, I, I just, my curiosity with him was how on earth can you get back in the car? Right. After yeah. Something after like that. that. Uh, yeah. 
you know, where you almost died. How can you get back in the car? You know, it's not like you, it's not like you got an accident on the beltway here in DC, right? I mean, or a fender (laughs) fender, you know, you know, his car disintegrated, (laughs) his car disintegrated going 200 miles an hour. I mean, that's lethal speed. People die, Mm -hmm. you know, in those crashes, you know? And so I just remember him very matter of factly with a smile on his face saying, this is what I do for a living. I love what I do. And I can't think of doing any, I can't imagine doing anything else with my life. And I was just, I was just amazed by that answer, you know, you know, and it just, it was just fascinating to watch somebody who just was not, if the, if he was afraid, he didn't show it. Um, and I don't think he was afraid. I think he was just very matter of fact that this is part of, part of what my job entails, this element of risk but I'm a professional and my job is to mitigate that risk as much as I can. And yeah. he did. And he wound up, fit, and he wound up finishing third in the race that year. I think if I'm third or fourth in the race, it was, it was one of those deals. You're not supposed to root for people, but I was rooting for him. You know, sure. because it was yep. just, it was just, it was just remarkable to watch him, watch somebody come back from something like that. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the, the Olympics, um, like Lindsey Vaughn crashing in the Super G and then yeah. rehabbing and coming back. And there's a story now of a snowboarder, I think he's from Canada, who almost died and then he rehabbed to get back to these Olympics to get on the board and do the same thing. It's just amazing. That's a mentality that I don't think I have. Right, right, exactly. It's a situation of, you know, when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and this, it, that's who you are, then you just keep doing it. You they just, just happen yeah. to be doing it and, and who they happen to be is something that, you know, results in a very dangerous career yes. choice. Yes. <laughs> but they, right. I, I, I can def, definitely appreciate and respect that because if, if you find out who you oh, are and what absolutely. you're supposed to be doing, you stick with it. And it's just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that my, my, who I'm not, who I am is not a race, race car driver. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, that that well, was interesting, you, David. I thought for sure you were going to say Obama. <laughs> well, that was that was you know what that was wonderful and fun, and he was you know, I was I was so impressed that he was actually a, a, a basketball fan. I mean, most yes. of the time when you talk to politicians, they 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 feign an interest in sports that they don't really have, you know, because they want mm-hmm. to be viewed as an everyman and man of the people or a woman of the people. And they don't know what they're talking about. And it shows immediately. Uh, I, I think, I don't know if you guys recall, you know, Teddy Kennedy talking about Sammy Susser and all of the yes. baseball players. Yes. Just, <laughs> totally. Oh God, just stop talking. Jesus. Just <laughs> you know, just stop. But Obama is a legit NBA fan. He knew what he was talking about. The things he said were right. And you just, and it was fun to have an interview with the president of the United States where you actually mm-hmm. were just talking about basketball. basketball and it wasn't about yeah. the, tra- the trappings of his office or anything like that. It was about basketball. So that was yes. fun. I really enjoyed yeah. that. Um, yeah, yeah. Great. I, I did get to interview Clinton as well. And that was a completely different experience. <laughs> completely. <laughs> Completely different. Experience. You didn't talk about basketball with Clinton. Not a lot. Not a lot. I mean, again, again, he's more. I think he was. I think he actually is a fan, but he's a fan of college basketball. Like he wanted to talk about Arkansas mm. and all that stuff, and that was fine. I mean, that was. He's the president. He can talk about whatever he wants to talk about. You know. Um, but was the difference to me was what was striking, and I've said this many times to people is 
Obama was clearly the president and he was clearly, um, you know, enjoying the office that he was in, mm-hmm. but it's still, it's, it, there was a feeling that this was just a guy that happened to be president and he could have Absolutely. just been, mm-hmm. prof, he could have been professor Obama, who's a big sports fan or Dr. Obama or, you know, Barack Obama Esquire, you know, I mean, he could have been just like a (laughs) white collar worker guy who likes sports. Okay. You have a conversation with him at that level. It's fine. Whereas Bill Clinton, I'm telling you, I I was fortunate to get this interview because I had a friend of mine who, who worked in the white house at the time, worked in PR at at the time, and she was able to get it for me. And it was a night that the, what, what is now capital one arena in Washington uh, opened. It was the first mm-hmm. night of the building opening. And he was coming because the owner of the bullets, there were the bullets in at the time, uh, the late A. Poland was a big time Democratic Party fundraiser, gave him millions of dollars. You know, they had the inaugural ball at, at the Capitol Center, which was his old building. So this was his new building. So he invited oh, wow, Clinton. Yeah. So Clinton came in. So I, some, I got my friend to somehow get me in to ask him, you know, three questions about basketball, about coming to the arena. And so you go in and to the suite and she said, look, he's got literally four minutes. You can't, you know, this isn't going to be 20 minutes, sit down. You don't have that kind of time. Now you got to ask your three questions and get out. And mm-hmm. I was like, that's fine. I understand. You know, I get it. You know, this was going to, it was a big deal. I was at ESPN at the time. It was a big deal for ESPN to get the president. That was not what was happening sure. normally. So I we get set up, they walk him over and you go and you start asking your questions. And I remember asking the first question, whatever it was. And, you know, interviewing one-on-one is that when you're interviewing somebody, you look them in the eye because you mm-hmm. want to see their you want to see their nonverbal cues. You want to see their body language. Yes. See if they're shifting, if they're evading a question, if they're nervous, if all those things that you can only see by looking at somebody when they're answering your question. And so I locked into Clinton. I started looking. I looked him dead in the eye while he's answering my first question. And I would say about 15, 20 seconds in to him answering the question, I began to notice that I, the reporter, was not paying attention to the answer <laughs> he was giving because he was so locked into my eyes. <laughs> and wow. I started to like, I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, it's like if you guys see, if you ever saw West Side Story, the movie. Mm-hmm. And you remember when Tony met Maria and everything else just kind of faded away and they just yeah, you get like a soft focus in the background. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was like that. And wow. I, was, I was, I couldn't believe that this was happening to me, <laughs> but it was. Yeah, you've heard, I've heard stories you about hear like about how in charming in person he is and how yes. like he, he would just like overwhelm you with like just the, sheer presence in the room. And I've heard that about, you know, other like people like Michael Jordan and things like that too. But it's amazing when every time I hear the story like that, that's, it's, you I've think, oh, that would happen to me. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I've interviewed Michael Jordan dozens of times. Yeah. It's not even close. Bill Clinton is the most, 
most charismatic human being I've ever met in my life. <laughs> wow. That is tremendous. It, it, it was incredible. <laughs> it was incredible. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It's like, wait a minute, this is actually happening to me. It's, you yeah. actually do feel like you're the only person in the room that he's talking to. And he really wow. is interested in what you have to say. And it's a wow. gift that got that he got, and he got seconds when he got in line. Because so, it's a, <laughs> it's incredible the, the the talent that takes talent, real talent, yes. sure, to be able yeah. to do Absolutely. that. And he's got it. And you you understand everything that happened to Bill Clinton. You understand why it happened. Every single thing, for good and for bad. <laughs> Every yeah. that single is... thing. You know why it happened because of his charisma, that is his incredible charisma. Wow, that's a great story. That is a tremendous story. Um, we, we've kept you a long time, David, um, Jason. Yes. Real quick before we go, I'd like to mention, uh, NBA 2K18. We think that you know, the video game is super cool, especially Jason, cause he plays yes. video games and I, I, I haven't for many years, but. <laughs> well, it's a whole new audience for me. So I'm excited about it. It makes me very happy that, that 12 year old boys love me now. So <laughs> year old boys and 40 year old man too, by the way, I, when I saw it, I, I was, I, I saw somebody else playing the game and I was like, they were doing the thing, you know, and I could tell it was Kevin Harlan doing the commentary. I recognize his voice, yeah. but then they cut and, like, and now we're going to go to David Aldridge, you know, who's with, you know, whoever the coach was, the, the team they were playing. And you showed up. I was like, I know him. It's David. Aldridge. <laughs> DA so it was, it was yeah. tremendous. Yeah. It was a Har- DA Har- moment in a video yeah. game. Harlan is the one that got me in the game. I give him all the credit in the world for thinking of me. So it's been, uh, it's been, it's been a lot, lot, lot of fun. Um, you know, just doing it and learning about that, about the, I knew nothing about video games and how they put them together. It's, I, I am amazed at the work and the level of detail oh, that yeah. they put into that. It's, it's really remarkable. Yeah. yeah with the technology the combined capture, with the talent is yeah. just tremendous. Yeah. Okay, we say the really heavy question for the end. All right. um, we're not sure how, but over time, this podcast, we found ourselves talking about food a lot, more yes. than we ever thought we would. People so, love food. People love food, and people have opinions on food. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's also become a bit of a tradition to ask our guests food questions. So uh, we had okay. Liz Clark on around Halloween. So we asked mm-hmm. her her feelings about candy corn. And we thought since you're on with us over Valentine's Day week, we'd ask you your thoughts on the what we think is the candy corn equivalent for Valentine's Day. <laughs> Those candy hearts with the stamped on sayings like hug me, love you, or whatever they say, mm-hmm. text me. There's probably newer ones now. Be mine. Right. Um, what's your what's your thoughts on those? Do you have any thoughts or do you not think about them at all? <laughs> my, my thoughts are... They taste like sand and, and I just, I have the distinct impression of my teeth shattering when I take, when I bite into one of them. (laughs) So my thoughts are not good ones about the heart shaped Valentine candy. I, I'd rather just have the actual chocolates, you know, (laughs) uh, yeah, the candy, I am not a fan of the, of the Valentine's day candy and never was when I was a kid. And I have not, I am not as an adult. It is not, uh, what I would call food in any sense of the word. (laughs) And so, um, it is, uh, it's a, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that, um, so many, so many people have to go to the dentist because of that 
Yeah. Yeah. their encounter with those things, which isn't even good. It's not even like, wow, that was, that was a real edifying experience, you know, gastronomically. <laughs> no. just, right. So I imagine that your, sort. I imagine your thoughts on candy corn are similar. I'm not a big candy corn guy. No, I don't yes. hate candy corn, but I would do nothing. I would lift no finger. I would exp- expend no energy to eat one or get one. Yeah, that is the right answer. Yeah, if someone literally throws candy corn at me and I caught one, I suppose (laughs) I'd bite into one. But that's about it. That's about the extent of it. I'm not going to do anything, volunteer any amount of time or energy to get them myself. Perfect. Outstanding, Um, David. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Yes. Well, I appreciate y'all having me, and I hope it was fun. Um, I love. Absolutely. I tell Tony this all the time that that I am I am amazed and I am um, encouraged about humanity, and I mean this in all seriousness by the family that has grown around his sh- his radio show and his podcast. I mean the incredible uh, neighborhood of people that you meet when, when you go to these things, these get togethers that y'all have every year and the incredible creativity in the community is just, it's remarkable to me. It's remarkable to observe it. Um, y'all are an incredible group of people and, um, it's, it's great to, to see you kind of getting together with one another and, and, having a community that's your own community. I think it's marvelous. And, and it's why I love doing the show. It's a big part of why I continue to love doing the show because I just don't think there's many shows that create this kind of community around themselves. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't think people who call in, there's people who call in the WFAN every day and talk about the Giants suck and the Yankees suck and they should fire Mm -hmm. this guy and they should trade this guy. But they don't get together with the other people who call the show. Right. <laughs> you know, no, and no. commiserate. They don't I don't think they have that kind of community. But this show creates this kind of community. And so I love being a part of it and anything that I can do to help that community grow and continue is something that I'd be happy to do. Awesome. Oh, very well, cool. I, I, I agree with that that, you know, I've everyone I've met as part of this group and the group of littles and and Everyone that's part of the show or associated with the show or like you guests on the show, it, it the community is the way it is because of Tony and and you and the other guests on the show are so, you know, um, you, you care about what you're doing and, and the relationships and the friendships come across that way. And, and that's what spreads out in the community. So it's just basically a um, amplification or a mirror to what you guys put up. And so that is that's. Yeah, it's it's been great. And it's great that, you know, just to say that I'm a part of it. Yeah, it's a really special community. I'm very proud and happy to be a part of it, too. Well, thank you all for what you do. And it's been it's been fun. So anytime if you ever want me on again, just ask me to come on. Oh, absolutely. Sounds great. Great. Thank you very much. Have a great time at the All-Star Game. Thank you. I appreciate that. Huge shout out to David for joining us and being so generous with his time. It was great talking with him, and we hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. If you'd like to have a DA moment and see him on TV, hear him on the Tony Kornheiser Show, read his writings, or follow him on Twitter, KJ gives all the detailed information in the credits at the end of this episode. 
And speaking of Twitter, now it's time for some feedback, because we care about what you have to say, at least when it's good things about us. So do we have any feedback this week? Yeah, let's let's do a Let's do a few tweets. You know, we've we've sure. got a pretty long show, quick. but we'll read a few. Um, okay. Let's say let's let's read a few. I don't know. Let's say affirmation baby tweets, for lack of a better better term. I mean, basically, if you send us a clarification or a tweet where you praise us in some way, we're probably going to read it. Um, <laughs> Are you now trolling for compliments? Is that what we're doing? Uh, well, I guess I I guess so. Okay. I guess I I guess you could take it that way. I'm just really stating uh, stating a fact. Or a semi-fact, I guess. We probably will read it. Not- well, I think it's I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> I think it's, you know, assumed that if you say something nice about us, we we like it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, the first one is about when you were talking last week about South Carolina and how you you weren't so sure that was the greatest place to visit. Certain Correct. portions of South Carolina. James Cunningham at James IV 1978 says, well, Columbia, South Carolina is pretty cool. A decent mm-hmm. amount of historical places. My dad lives in Myrtle Beach. That is, uh, how do I put this nicely? I'm not <laughs> sure I can. <laughs> I agree. And, Columbia is pretty, pretty decent. And I've been to Myrtle Beach many, many, many times growing up on the uh, East Coast. That's where we went for summer vacations because it was cheap uh-huh. and was okay, you know, as a kid. I didn't mind. Um, but, yeah, um, I agree with James. Isn't that where you're supposed to go to golf, though? Isn't there a golf haven in Myrtle Beach? I have no idea. I was not playing much golf at, you know, 7, and 8, 9, 10 years old. So. Yeah, but I'm thinking about for my South Carolina vacation whenever I take oh, it. Oh, yeah. I've heard, I've heard of Tony talking about um, going to Myrtle Beach to play golf before. And didn't he go down there for a trip one, one summer? Oh, I think, isn't that where Michael's in-laws live? Um, so I, I think he that. goes down there to play golf with them. Oh, okay. Or t- with the uh, father-in-law. I don't know. So let's just let's just put it this way. If you do actually have in-laws there or family yeah. there, go there to play golf. But otherwise, there's probably better places. And Well, and Phil Foster replied to James at Cigar Raider, Myrtle Beach equals Hillbilly Holiday. I should know. Went there every summer for vacation as a kid. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I need to. I need to hit up Phil on this and see what years he was there. Exactly. Because what, what your age range is. Or it was literally. I think he. I guess you know he and I are probably about the same age. Um, I say that having zero yeah. <laughs> reason to, to even say that. I just assume that most people who listen to Tony's show are basically our age. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, I went for like probably ten years in a row. So when I was a kid from like when I was like eight or nine until like I basically graduated high school, my family went every year. So is this sort of the South version of Jersey Shore? Uh, yeah, I would say that or like the um, the same as like if you go into Tennessee, because I also lived in Tennessee at some point. Uh-huh. Uh, is It's like the um, it's like going to like Dollywood and Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which it's. Gatlinburg is nicer than that, but like, you know, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, where Dollywood is, is kind of like, um, it's, uh, not really upscale. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a less expensive vacation. I haven't it's been It's less expensive there. to like, it's the less expensive Disney World. 
I have not been to that area or Memphis, which is on my list. But every time, you yes. know, I have family in Nashville, so that's where I end up going yes. when I go to Tennessee. Yeah, Nashville is nice. Memphis is you. You need to go to Memphis. I know. I know. If, I if do. Just for what, like David was talking about, to see the museum. And yes, the, um, absolutely. I would really like to that. do that. Yes. Um, okay, we have two tweets from John Miller. The first one is affirmation for me, and the second okay. one is affirmation for you. <laughs> uh, about something that you recommended quite a while back now. So John Miller at JKM563. I have also changed Siri to Nigel's voice. So that made <laughs> me feel good because I thought nice. I was just really an outlier there. Um, and then for you, he said he watched season four of Halt and Catch Fire today. Great series. Mm-hmm. Takes you from early in the computer age through to the internet. Must see. Was he saying he watched the entire season four in one day? Uh, maybe. That's kind of like what it, ten hours of TV. Kind of what it reads like, isn't it? Um, I have watched them all. I don't think you're finished yet. Uh, no, I'm on episode. I have eight, nine, and ten left. So, just a big event just happened at the end of one. A okay. huge event. Okay, I wonder, you know what I'm talking about. Yep, I wonder. Yeah, what don't you'd say it. Feel when that happened. Yeah, I had to take a break after watching it. I know um, it was really tough, wasn't it? Yeah. So. It may be one of my favorite shows of all time. It's a great show, and I'm I'm very happy you recommended it. Oh, yeah. It depends on how they end. It, I got three episodes left, and I'm probably going to watch them in the next week or so because I want us to do a like whole segment on this show talking about it, if we can. It. I really think people should see it. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm excited. And I, I want to do almost like a spoiler, like... Tell people, hey, if you haven't seen this, you need to watch it. If you've seen it and you want to hear what we have to say about it, because there's so many things in this show that I want to pull out and say, this this really you know impressed me, or this was awesome how they did this. The writing, the acting, how they sh- like the production, like the cinematography, how they yeah. shoot the thing. It's 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 very impressive. I've been very impressed the whole way, and how it's evolved from the very first season till now oh, is. Yeah. And how they jump time, you know, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's I will it's very s- cool. I'm excited to see what you think about how it ends. Okay, don't say anything else. I won't. I don't. I don't want to. You liked it or you didn't like it. I don't want to. Let's move on. Okay, so we've got two more tweets, um, both from John Fitzpatrick. The first is sort of a clarification, or more like a clarifying <laughs> question, I guess. Um, at Fitzjohn P. <laughs> Was Jason's pronunciation of a shoe askew? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Which has made me laugh. Um, because I think you said askew. I said I said askew. And, and that's the yes. way I pronounce it. Well, the pedantic jerk had did reach out to me via text and told me that we were both wrong and that it was a shoe. He is correct. But I don't say it that way. A shoe. I, I, I would have said a shoe if I would have been just reading it and hadn't heard it already. Uh-huh. I think so. He's right. He's totally right. Askew versus askew. That's how askew. A s k e w. Is shoe. It's not. It's not chew. It's or q. It's no, I don't shoe. say chew, but I do say askew. I don't know. Well, Maybe a, if I was reading it, I word. would say a shoe. I don't askew, know. Askew. Askew is more like you know that's not lined up correctly. Right. That's a different word. A s k k e w. Correct. I say askew for that. A h a. Askew, not eskew. I think it's a shoe. Oh, I think like in uh, a shoe, like one on one of yeah. a pair of shoes. Bless you. Yeah, a shoe. <laughs> okay, and the second tweet from John is giving me some affirmation. Okay, 
I guess not. So you're slamming me. So you pick two that slam me, one that slams me and one that um, no, because it's praises really, you. It's are. really not affirmation for me. I see how that, Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Bravo to KJ and her accidental shout out to Vivian Smith Smythe Smith. Did I even get that right? Smith Smythe Smith? Yes. Okay. And he included a gif of John Cleese. So I'm going to go ahead and assume this is Monty Python. You would be correct. Okay. So the accidental shout out makes it not really an affirmation for me. Yeah. I appreciate tobacco. I think it was Brendan in New Jersey who said he loved the shout out to um, John Sinjin Smythe, which I said. Oh, I didn't see I'm glad that. somebody picked up on that. Yeah. It was, um, he might've just tweeted it at me, but I, I want to say I appreciate that because that's. I don't know what that is. Is that Monty Python okay. too? No, it is not. John Sinjin Smith? John Sinjin Smythe. Smythe, okay. It, but it's like spelled John Saint John Smythe. <laughs> okay. It's, it's not a. It's like not a comedy. Put it that way. It's a movie, but it's not a comedy. It's a movie I bet you have seen. And it's a it's a British movie. Mm, yes, the novel that it, the books that they the books that all these series of movies that ba- were based on written by um, somebody from Britain, I believe. And the person playing this role is a British guy. And um, he it's set in, ostensibly set in, in, in London. Yeah. But okay. he goes all over the world. And many people have played this character over the years, since like the, what, 60s? James Bond. Yes, it is a James Bond movie. Okay. Boom. Very good. Double oh seven points for you right there. Yeah. All right, we need to quit because that was terrible. Yeah, we we're quitting. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough. Yeah, it's a a view to a kill. I believe is the movie. I remember that. Mm-hmm. That's his like uh, alias. In That's one his of the, alias, like, like in the ho- yeah, like a hotel like infiltrating, or He's like infiltrating the like. He goes to like the criminal masterminds like hideout and that's like his alias he uses and i read a a thing that said basically roger moore who was playing james bond at the time insisted that be the alias because he came up with it and wanted to pronounce it like that (laughs) and it's it struck me as ridiculous back when i was you know what 12 watching this movie like what what did he just say that's a weird alias that's what and of course it's the stupid thing every time where james bond has an alias yeah but like the criminal mastermind like knows who he is all along and they're just kind of like pretending that they don't know that the other knows. Cause you know, James Bond knows that the criminal guy knows that he's not this other name that he's actually James Bond. And the criminal guy knows that James Bond knows that he knows it's just <laughs> ridiculous. And I never, I never got that part. Cause like every time James Bond goes and is like playing poker with the evil guy or he's, you know, living in his house or, you know, doing something with his like, I guess he's, you know, like working at his corporation or whatever, whatever he's done over the years. However, he's like getting in because he's a spy. It's it's James. It's like the guy knows who you are. What what are we pretending? (laughs) They have to throw their, you know, comedic twist in there, I guess, for people to continue to talk about it for years to come. I don't think that's the way it's intended. Okay. Oh, all right. Anything else? Nope. I think that'll do it. Did we get another iTunes review? Maybe. I think we got an iTunes review or rating. 
Uh, cool. Not another written review, but we got another rating. And so thank you, who, whomever did that. Whoever, yeah, whomever. Great. Whomever. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter. I guess follow us on Facebook. Do we update Facebook? At Spake. At Spake. At Speak Somebody. Tangents for both of them. Yes. Yes. And then uh, we have email. Yeah, speaking yeah. of tangents, podcast at gmail.com. And I guess um, we have Instagram. Yes. S-O-T-P-O-D, I think it is. That's very good. And I didn't even remember that. Snapchat, we we have, but we don't know what that is. <laughs> I literally do not know what it is. I don't either. <laughs> That's funny. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, boy. I just did that here so I wouldn't have to do it in the in between. Yep. Saving time. Efficiency. So, anything else this week? Nope, that'll do it. Okay, bye. Bye. Speaking of Tangents is brought to you by KJ Onstead and Jason Fuse. Hosted by Jason Fuse and KJ Onstead. Created by KJ Onstead and Jason Fuse. Music written and performed by Jason Fuse. Lyrics and vocals by KJ Onstead and Jason Fuse. Edited by Jason Fuse. Special consultant for guest acquisitions is KJ Onstead. Speaking of guests, we had a great time with our guest, David Aldridge, this week. And just wanted to thank him once again for coming on with us. Check David out on NBA on TNT, uh, his Monday morning tip on NBA.com, and the Tony Kornheiser Show podcast. And he's also a great follow on Twitter at DAldridgeTNT. That's D-A-L-D-R-I-D-G-E-T-N-T. So join the conversation. And speaking of conversation, I decided to look up an Amazon review. We haven't done those in a while of these conversation hearts and I looked up Neko Sweethearts Conversation Hearts and here's a, the review by Lady Jane titled One Star These candies were terriable If you want to break your teeth by all means buy them Still they rate higher than Jason's flu There you go Conversation Hearts They're better than the flu Graphics by Jason Fuse I love snow peas, and I love you. Bye-bye.